You're listening to The Cinema Snarks. I'm Larry. And I'm Rin. And we are going to tell you how we really feel. And today, we're giving our real opinions on Nightmare Alley and the entire filmography of Guillermo del Toro. About the parts of the filmography we've seen. Yes. Uh, Caveat. The the movies we have seen. His general aesthetic as a director, <laughs> as we have observed it thus far. <laughs> Before we get into Nightmare Alley, I think that is something to just note is out of the directors working today, even a lot of the legacy directors, Guillermo del Toro really has a style. He really is distinct. Like you can tell a del Toro project when it's on screen you know i was uh watching it and thinking about how this is like he kind of took up the mantle of like tim burton if tim burton had like grown and gotten better elevated himself yeah instead of hitting a peak and then being like i don't care anymore (laughs) as far as i can tell that's what's happened to him it's been a while since we've gotten a good Tim Burton project. So. <laughs> I, I actually, I probably wouldn't mind so much if, like, at least his style was still a part, right? Like, yeah. I think I would be a sucker for his aesthetic, even if it was not that good a movie. But he's like, doesn't even bring his aesthetic into his movies anymore. He got bored with it. Um, and even when he tries, like, sometimes he'll try to re inject it, but it kind of feels like. A, a lesser director ripping off Tim Burton. Like, yeah, he feels like a ripoff of himself at this point. It's, so. very, it's very sad to watch a, a person who peaked and is now just <laughs> this sad remnant of themselves. Especially when somebody you loved so yeah. much. And still, I like, I still love yeah. his movies. They don't, the good ones don't, haven't lost their appeal to me in any way, shape, or form. It's not like some of the other filmmakers where you watch them again and you're like, oh, so much. Uh, say, we've talked a lot on the superhero genre about your love for his Batman films. So. Yes, yes. <laughs> still to this day, I wouldn't. I wouldn't trust current Tim Burton to do a good oh, no, superhero no. film. Um, that would be very scary. But but we're not here to talk yeah. about Tim Burton. We're here to talk talking about, about another man who sometimes Ooh. it's easy to forget has directed two different superhero franchises in his career. He directed superhero franchises before directing superhero franchises yeah, was cool man he did it he did he was on the the cutting edge up here and i think it was all the better for it because you got to do it before studios really mandated what you did so mm-hmm. his his vision and his aesthetic and style comes through in his films including the superhero franchise ones but i think we can agree unlike tim burton del toro he's over tw- 20 years in his career at this point, almost at 30 years since his debut, he's not lost his touch. He's, he has not gone downhill. He I, has not peaked. <laughs> I might argue that Nightmare Alley is his best yet. Okay, so Nightmare Alley is actually a remake of a 1947 film. Ren, have you seen that original Nightmare Alley? I have not, but that 1940s time period sounds about right for that film noir genre. 
Yeah, directed by Edwin Golding. And that also was an adaptation of a novel, which was published in 1946. So they got to work on that original film. <laughs> they adapted right. that immediately. <laughs> so it was like the shit when the book came out and they're like, let's do it. Like, yeah. This is back in the days when books were still like super hip and cool and lots of people read books. So the premise of Nightmare Alley takes place in 1940s New York. Imagine that. Down on his luck, Stanton Carlisle. All right, um, let's be specific. It's Buffalo, New York. Hey! Just to be clear, not that city you're thinking of. It's it the is. little one that everybody forgets <laughs> about unless it's football season and we're being made fun of. For yes. Being silly. In 1940s Buffalo, New York. This is relevant and I'm going to get into yes. it. Um, but um, go ahead, keep going. Down on his luck, Stanton Carlisle endears himself to a clairvoyant and her mentalist husband at a traveling carnival. Using newly acquired knowledge, Carlisle crafts a golden ticket to success by swindling the elite and wealthy. Hoping for a big score, he soon hatches a scheme to con a dangerous tycoon with help from a mysterious psychiatrist who might be his most formidable opponent yet. The film has an all-star cast that includes Bradley Cooper, Kate Blanchett, Rooney Mara, and Tony Collette. This is the sort of cast where if you're trying to like recommend the movie to a person, you can just start listing off the actors and eventually you'll get to one where they're like, oh, okay, I'll check that out. <laughs> so it also includes, you know, some Del Toro mainstays I have your Ron Perlman. <laughs> he had to find his way in. Good for him. <laughs> Willem Dafoe. You don't really see him in anything else. So <laughs> I'm glad he has that adorable. Yes. He's And he's okay. He's like the Johnny Depp, Tim Burton. But he doesn't like overuse him in that yes. same way. And that it's like almost become a little bit stale. I Okay. I don't feel that way. I've heard that before where people are like, oh, it's overused. But. I think I'm just a fan of Johnny Depp one way or the other. What are you going to do? Him and Helena, which obviously went a little bit more downhill <sighs> after the divorce. But uh, <laughs> yes. So how did you feel about Nightmare Alley, Ren? So I heckin' loved Nightmare Alley. I thought it was so good. Uh, it is easily my favorite of the best picture nominees that I've seen so far. And I think it is probably my favorite um, Guillermo del Toro movie. Um, I really, really liked Crimson Peak. I also really, really liked Pan's Labyrinth. Um, but this movie is like from beginning to end, just incredible, sumptuous, perfect details all the way around. Like there is not a moment where my eyeballs weren't feasting on everything. The tone was just perfect throughout. It was that it had that slow film nor burn to it without it feeling slow. Um, you had just everybody's performances were just fantastic throughout. Um, I love the way that the plot rolls around by the end and I'm like, this is storytelling. <laughs> um, 
I, I mean, I also like, it's just, it, there's so many fun aesthetics that he was playing with here, like starting with the fucking crazy circus. Yes. Like there's so much like, I, yes, please give me a Gail Tor Guillermo del Toro style circus. Is that perfect? Uh, he finds the beauty in the grotesque in the way that I don't think any other director really quite nails in the same way that he does. Um, and, and I think a circus is a perfect vehicle for grotesque beauty. Um, and, and then once you move into this sumptuous version of <laughs> Buffalo, New York, with every little art deco detail down to each little prop on every single fucking person's desk. It's like, it's breathtaking the amount of work and detail and attention that was put into Nightmare Alley. Um, so I, yeah, I just like had to, I, Patrick was not watching it with me, but I literally had to like grab him and be like, I just need you to look at this thing. It's look at so this good. <laughs> like, look at, look at the, look at the sconces on the wall. Look at this like yeah. pattern in her office on the like cabinet. She's got these weird kind of symbolic, almost <laughs> uterus things on her wall. It's like, yeah. oh, so good. And like, I also think that what I loved about this is it was like a, it was an homage to film noir without being like, but it was updated and expanded and was like the next level. Like you, everyone understood the assignment basically like watching Kate Planchette play. She, she's like, she is a femme fatale from the beginning. You like fucking know, oh, oh no, there's your femme fatale. <laughs> Um, but oh, this she's like slinking her way across the, the screen with danger in her fucking eyes. Like this lady again understands the assignment, and but they did it without any of these characters becoming caricatures. Yeah, which I think it could have easily kind of moved that way with any less gifted actors um, than you have in this film. Um, I I think Bradley Cooper. Uh, I I understand why he didn't get a Best Actor nomination because this is not a big performance yeah um which sucks because it does seem like um with the oscars <laughs> if men are going to get an oscar nominee it's got to be big like you're not yeah. they don't tend to nominate the like nuanced performances as much mm -hmm. just generally um there needs to be a certain degree of yelling and screaming um but he just his journey it really starts to come through um as you kind of get towards the end, like that, that as it like really plays out and everything is unraveling, yeah. um, that's where you really get those incredible moments from Bradley Cooper. I think he does a good job of like keeping it grounded um, and playing this character that is kind of a villain, but also kind of the hero. And like, yeah. you don't necessarily dislike him or think that he's, he's, he's kind of, um, you know, it's very much that old, the, 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 the Greek, concept of, of hubris right like he yeah, like yeah. kind of messes with the gods right the, the magician the mentalist at the beginning he like warns him about like toying with this power and he's warned multiple times <laughs> and he's just he basically screws himself over because he just he gets yeah, too so too big for his bridge riches mm -hmm. um it is it is a at, the, at its core is kind of like a, a moral story um 
And this is why I'm so excited for Pinocchio, because once again, this is what Guillermo does in most all of his films, is he crafts a kind of moral fairy tale into this really dark kind of feeling. This is, uh, I did like a little bit of research on Guillermo del Toro uh, before we did this, so I kind of had a bigger concept of what what his background was and why, you know, just to know. And um, Guillermo del Toro uh, is very Catholic. Uh, he is an ex-Catholic and, and I, I identify, um, I am culturally Catholic and I think Guillermo del Toro would call it, would understand that. Um, like he doesn't necessarily believe in God, but uh, it's really hard to get rid of all of those traditions and those morals and those stories and those, those feelings that being Catholic really emphasizes in a way that, um, some other sects of Christianity are just not the same. Like, I, I certainly think there's like a the dark sumptuousness that feels very Catholic. That's that just like on its own. But I mean, like at the very core, it's the so much of it is like this um, these feelings of guilt and punishment. And it's um, even maybe that's why he's so good at uh, you know visionary stuff too. Is because for all of its uh, <laughs> guilt that. Catholicism uh, and fear that Catholicism really plays on. Also beautiful. Uh, I mean, yes. say what you will, but the God. the temples, the absolutely the work that is done. I mean, if you're going internationally and you're not looking at churches, like you don't need to be a Catholic no. to go and look Appreciate at Notre Dame and go, holy crap, this yeah. is gorgeous. Yeah. Um, the, I mean, like the, at the end of the day, like historically, for a great period of time, the Catholic Church was the the most economically powerful yes. entity in the world, and they were the ones who put all the money into the art. Um, so we have this very, very rich collection of gorgeous art that is very biblical. Um, so that definitely makes sense um, that he pulls from that a lot in his um in his work but yeah this this one definitely had that uh that catholic guilt and that like moral (laughs) story going um and but i think that it's nice too because it also seems like you know he has that outsider perspective on the catholic guilt Mm -hmm. and all of these things and like it almost seems unfair to a point as you're watching these things happen to him like like he he has it coming and he kind of brings it upon himself, but also there's plenty of people in the movie who are never punished for things they probably should have. A been lot of the people, for. this is one of those films where most of the people we're following aren't good people necessarily. Right. They're all mm-hmm. conflicted. I, I mean, I guess you could say Rooney Mara's character is pretty, yes. she's, she's, the, she's the best of them in the film. She's supposed to be your little virgin. Yeah, she's, she's the sweet one. But everybody else is the virgin and the, the Madonna and the virgin. Yeah, then you have the Madonna and the whore. That's the Catholic thing, which you have yes. right there almost immediately with your Tony Collette and your uh, Rooney Mara. Yes. And so if that's not your jam, you probably will be miserable because our lead character has you conflicted as we just said mm-hmm. we're following this man who's doing kind of shitty things and is uh, pretty selfish like he's not a good person per se he's not downright evil he's not no. horrible there's so a sense he- of survival yes um, like because we meet him and he's you know down on his like well granted after doing something not good <laughs> 
he starts the story off with an it's evil very suspicious mouth. situation. Yeah, yeah. Even, even like they reveal the full aspects of it throughout the movie, but right off the bat, you're like, mm, this guy did some shit. Yeah, uh, yeah. But then you have that Robin Hood aspect where I mean, he's taking it to these rich a holes who totally. are not good yeah, people either. He- Charming as hell Especially, with what's his name? Jenkins. Uh his character, the main like tycoon guy, is a horrible person, as we start he- to learn. Horrible. As he reveals himself more uh through his story, he is terrible. Yeah. So you're like, oh yeah, no. Uh okay, you need to get screwed over, sir. Um, Kate Blanchett's character, as you said, you can tell from the start something's going on with this woman. She is not a good person either. (laughs) Nobody, only Rooney. She's the only like innocent little person amongst it all. She just wants to be a weirdo amongst her people in the circus. (laughs) She just wants to be a little circus folk. Uh, but oh my god, I just need to say. Kate Blanchett stole the whole damn show for me. I, <laughs> it's not hard. She often does in anything she's know. in. She often steals the show for me. I don't me. know how she does it. It's but, incredible oh the transformations you can see that woman. Yeah, I mean, but, we see we saw her in fellow uh, Oscar nominee Don't Look Up, and she's just this vapid, like, ridiculous yeah. talk show. <laughs> and then here she just gives this really sultry, amazing performance. And she just yeah. lights up the screen, with, and she looks amazing in the she film, looks too. She looks so good. I mean... Ugh. Everything looks amazing. Like every yeah. single costume, every single again. I'm so it glad. Is a visual delight. That's why I'm glad. Uh, it got those, you know, beneath the line nominations. The production designs, the yeah, those type of design. I, I, I just mean, like, I, you know, I, I've seen a lot of the things on the production design list, and <laughs> no question in my mind, Nightmare Alley should be winning that. Just like the level of detail all the way around is just incredible incredible kudos to that team because they were not sleeping for a second (laughs) on each and every shot the cinematography too was like gorgeous it was just it was incredible and that's Um, and it gives off that and that's what he does well again in all of his films though you know he's not the cinematographer but he is the director who gives the note and gives the cinematographer what he wants and it communicates, but he is able to create this atmosphere just through cinematography, through color grading, through Mm -hmm. the sets. It all adds into this really amazing immersive atmosphere. Mm -hmm. He does it so well. I actually, again, I don't know many directors who can match Del Toro in that aspect of just immersing you purely based on what it is you're seeing yeah and nightmare alley 100 just evokes that nightmare alley makes me be like just give him all the money he wants to just keep building yeah. incredible worlds please because i like until he reaches some sort of like capacity i i can't imagine anything Ugh, it was just so yeah. beautiful um and of course i also have to mention so um the movie is set in buffalo which <laughs> I am from Buffalo. Hey. I grew up there. Um, and, you know, you don't get a lot of love. It's like a very working class town. Most of people just remember that uh, we went to the Super Bowl four times and lost four times in a row. In a row. Yeah. Um, so like, we in, a row, that in a row. To be clear, uh, we were killing it for four seasons. Uh, the story that I always tell is that uh, when I because when I was in like kindergarten, um, when they were winning the Super Bowl um, and then uh, I went to a Catholic school. <laughs> so we had to wear uniforms every day. But when 
when the Buffalo Bills were playing the Super Bowl the day before, we all got to wear our Buffalo Bills gear on that Friday. Um, and then the first year that the Buffalo Bills were not in the Super Bowl, this one girl in my class came to school without her uniform on wearing her Buffalo Bills gear. And she got in all kinds of trouble because she wasn't wearing a uniform. And <laughs> this poor girl, she's in like second grade. For as long as she can remember, the Buffalo Bills have been in the Super Bowl. So when it was the Super Bowl, she just assumed this is what you do. This poor little girl. Anyways, um, Buffalo, however, uh, was a huge hub uh, during the 1920s. Um, they were they hosted the World's Fair. Um, basically, very very boring history of it. The Erie Canal was built. It diverted a lot of uh, the commerce back down to New York City, and basically fucked us. But. <laughs> Right. We're going to be weird and bitter about it. But um, around the Industrial Revolution, Buffalo was huge. It was a giant city. It was just as important as New York City. Um, and um, around the 1920s uh, is when you have a lot of this Art Deco uh, decor. Um, it's usually the 1920s through to the 1940s or so. Um, but this Art Deco style is prevalent throughout Buffalo. Like if you go to Buffalo and you want to look at the architecture, there are some incredible pieces there. Um, their city hall is one of the most incredible pieces of architecture ever. Um, and Guillermo del Toro also set his uh, brilliant uh, horror film Crimson Peak in Buffalo because the man has done his goddamn research and he understands that Buffalo, if he wants to have a beautiful, decadent Art Deco world, Buffalo makes sense historically for the time periods that he's choosing um, for this aesthetic that he has chosen. Um, so I loved that. I just absolutely, my heart was like, oh, this man, he understands me. Um, he gets it. <laughs> gets it. Right? And like, obviously, I'm going to be a little bit extra partial to his aesthetic because I grew up in this city where yeah. this is like, you know, I've got, and also uh, my family's a whole bunch of architects and so uh, my mom always joked about how like um, when she was kids when they went on vacation they went and like looked at buildings and she thought that was what everybody did on vacation when they were kids was they went to go look at buildings yeah. um, but uh, anyways um, that is one thing I did want to point about out yeah. about Guillermo del Toro Grim, Sorry. <laughs> very enthusiastic also about Guillermo yeah. del Toro and Buffalo so New York. hyped um, well <laughs> How did you feel about the rest of our cast when it came to Rooney and Tony and all so, the rest of them? Okay, so I I really liked everyone. Um, I thought, honestly, they're probably maybe one of the weakest points. Honestly, Tony Collette wasn't bad, um, but I don't know if there was much of a, um, a strong, like, character to Xena. It's hard um, when you see, like, Kate Blanchett, and she's very clearly this femme fatale. Like, I'm not quite, I wasn't quite sure exactly what the, like, archetype that Xena is supposed to be. I think she's, I'm almost liked her too much, and she was too nice, I think. I don't know, whereas everyone else is kind of com complicated. And I, I don't think there's any failing on the part of Tony Collette. I think she she did a very believable, understandable job with it. Um, it made sense with, with the character and the world that was built. Um, but uh, I mean, it was just, you know, compared to every other person, it felt like she was in just a little bit different movie. Um, but everyone else uh, I thought was really incredible. David Strathairn as the like, crumbling mentalist uh just like wow. falling apart um i thought he was really good 
Um, I loved my little Mary Steenburgen just for like a hot second. I mean, she has a moment that is quite impactful because you're oh, just yeah. like, oh, <laughs> oh yeah, okay, <laughs> oh yeah. Um, and then the Molly Cahill, uh, Rooney Mara, she's fine. I mean, that is a very uh, that is you want to talk about Pollyanna characters. She is just there's nothing bad about her. Um, she is very meh. Um, all the way around, uh, as that character trope typically is. I don't think that is, again, any fault on the part of Rooney Mara. <laughs> it just is the nature of the um, the beast that you created when you pick, like, this very specific genre. Yeah. Um, and goddamn Kate Blanchett stole the show, so then everybody, like, next to her is like, ah, boring. <laughs> <laughs> right from the get-go, right from her being in that damn audience of their Let show, you're like, oh. Let me some more with oh, her little my. gun. <laughs> with that tiny little gun in her back. <laughs> great. I thought Willem Dafoe was great. He's always great. Oh, he's um, great. And he, he's perfect for that role that they yes. gave him here. I mean, sure. yeah. So do you think they transition well from circus to, you know, his like suave mentalist life? I I think so. I mean, I don't think there's much of a tra- transition. I think it goes straight from circus, dirty, grotesque to sumptuous, beautiful, gorgeous world. Um, I do think it uh, manages to slide back into that grotesque pretty quickly. Um, at the end when it <laughs> needs to yeah. as necessary right it was like ah there it is Guillermo del Toro <laughs> we can't go thing- the entire film without no. this no. other thing to keep in mind about Guillermo del Toro that I learned and it like explains a lot about his aesthetic and a lot about like why I feel like I really enjoy his movies particularly and identify with them is uh that he got started as a a makeup artist that was the very beginning of his career was in makeup and he trained with uh dick smith who is uh basically like one of the greatest makeup artists of all time like um they they, they teach you about him when you go to makeup school um <laughs> special effects makeup school because he created all kinds of incredible makeup designs um and so he trained directly under this this incredible makeup artist and it then makes a lot of sense as you then watch his films and you're like oh yeah this guy gets like how much better it is to have those practical effects um, and how much more effective it is and how, and how to make them good and how to make them awesome. Um, he, he, I, I find, so one of the things is, a I, I, I studied makeup design. I do a lot of makeup artistry and stuff. And, um, one of the weird things that you do as a makeup artist is you research wounds. You just like are generally fascinated with somebody's like wound. You find like pictures of it and like, you want to just like see what it looks like. Um, <laughs> Because you want to like be able to build these things in real life, um, things that look just like a, a gaping wound. Um, and I think you know, there's some he really likes those bashed in faces. Like that was that was the moment um, I was like. So when I watched Pan's Labyrinth, I was in. Uh, I think I was in college. Maybe okay. it was like the a summer older, during college. At least than, than I was, I was older. I was older. I was older. I was definitely in my teens, and I was in a phase where I was just getting really, really high and watching movies, and that was like the thing I wanted to do. And I thought, oh, Pan's Labyrinth, a lovely fantasy, and I was super stoned. <laughs> and then it gets to the part of the movie where his face gets bashed in with a bottle, and I was like, oh no. 
this is not <laughs> this I is not a... david bowie labyrinth this is not the light i was expecting oh okay <laughs> so yeah. uh that is yeah permanently imprinted on my brain and i just i so appreciate it even down to this film uh yeah. shape of water no matter what it is still in the age of so much cg even in horror itself has gone in and out of cg practical cg practical he is so practical heavy in everything and i just i appreciate it so much <laughs> I appreciate it so much and, and honestly the generations after us will also appreciate it because there's not nobody's gonna watch a guillermo del toro movie in 20 years and be like some rough 2022 <laughs> CG. Yeah, we were we were talking about this before, and I guess this could just lead into our general Guillermo discussion. But even watching Pan's Labyrinth in 2022, it's some of the most horrifying designs still, and they look amazing. The creatures in that film look amazing because they're all practical. Like all of the practical stuff remains iconic because. It, it just looks so good. But yeah, Nightmare Alley, for me, it dragged just a bit through that second act as, it, as we're getting to that third act and it's, you know, we're moving along and going over this stuff with this guy. But I definitely think it is. I could totally worth. if you weren't like, oh my God, the set. <laughs> if your eyes right. were moving around the screen in excitement, I could see how I could set the dragon in the middle. But, yeah. But wow, that third act, I I loved the third act. I thought it brought the film mm -hmm. back together so beautifully in such a great fashion. It's so <laughs> sudden. It goes from like, uh, yeah, it's like, if it was slow, it's like. <gasps> and that's kind of what we've come to expect again, because he does that often enough, uh, or at least recently, I'd say, because. Yeah. The Shape of Water does that to an extent, too. It's, it's all this romance. So you have the weirdness there because you're dealing with a fish man and this woman kind of falling in love with him <laughs> throughout the film. So you have weirdness present, but it starts to get gruesome in that third act of the film where yeah. people are shooting and he's like biting things or like doing crazy stuff. And they're like, whoa, OK. <laughs> I thought I was in for this like lovely kind of light fantasy romance. No, that <laughs> ain't it though. But you say you think that Nightmare is your new favorite Del Toro film. What was your previous favorite then? Hands Labyrinth. Um, yeah, I'm a fantasy nerd. Um, it's I'm my just, favorite. <laughs> beautiful. It's beautiful. I like the makeup and everything is just like incredible. Um, I think that, but I think but it's a tough choice. But the thing with Nightmare Alley was that, like, there is so much more on the screen. I think the Art Deco set design is what like sets it up and above for me. Is that like there's not a moment in Nightmare Alley where I'm not like, um, and there's there's something like I think there's partially that also there's like a little bit of childish ambiguousness in um, yes. Pan's Labyrinth. Yes. It's also like. So I think the other thing is Pan's Labyrinth is like ultimately fucking heartbreaking. I mean, it's that simply is, is not Nightmare Alley is like ties it back around. It's and a it's sad, like, like it's kind of a sad ending, but not again. You, <laughs> the character is so conflicting, and everyone in the film is so conflicted that you feel like okay, and Pan's Labyrinth, <laughs> you're following this child um, 
who has been in this horrible situation is stuck with this abusive stepfather in this war. Uh, and the end is just sad. It's just heartbreaking. And no matter how you interpret that ending, yeah. it's just devastating. Nightmare Alley is not, is not devastating by the end. Nightmare Alley, again, it's like a moral story. Like yeah. by the end, you're like, and that's what happens. <laughs> yes, that is what happens. Oh, so good. Uh, the final line. Oh, it's so good. And I think, and I didn't have that reaction when I watched Pan's Labyrinth. I was just, I think when I was watching Pan's Labyrinth, I was just like weeping and was like, I don't know, she might just be dead. <laughs> she might just be dead. She's life. just dead. She might just be dead and it happened now. This is horrible. Why is the world so bad? And then with Nightmare Alley, it was like, yes. <laughs> this is what I was born for. Yes. Yeah. Storytelling. <laughs> oh, yeah. I think it just like tweaked my nerd, the like theater storytelling, like film nerd in me all the way around. Um, we talked about it a little bit because it was the first time watch for you recently. We have Crimson Peak. An oh, underrated film Crimson that too. people, I think what happened with Crimson Peak is the way it was marketed and still had that style. I don't really know what people were anticipating, but I think they were anticipating more of a straight up horror ghost story Which, type of film. It fucking kills. Like that shit is terrifying. That's all I need in my life. If you're going to tell me a ghost story, like I'm going to need those jump scares and those terrifying ghost moments. That's yeah. That's a ghost story to me. Yeah. Um, it's there. And I, I mean, I don't know. It was more gothic horror uh, than people wanted. I don't know. I don't understand. But people didn't love it. It's a, like 60 something on the tomato meter. We're ready for the whole <laughs> twisty part. I don't want to like ruin it for people. Because yeah. I, I think, I think everyone should see it. I think this is a, I think Crimson Peak is a cult classic that just needs to like get there. It's, it's, I have been praising it for years. Yeah. Sorry. You were right. You were yes. right. You were right. And that's another one where you're just watching and it's just like, God, these sets are stunning yeah. and gorgeous. The gorgeous, costume. Right. I was already hooked when it was like in Buffalo. That like it literally says Buffalo this year. Yes. Whatever. The score <laughs> is amazing. The again, the cinematography yes. and the another maybe underrated thing is he's a really good. He's just really good at casting. Um, yes. Yes. And he like, doesn't just rely on the same actors over and over other again. Other than Ron, Ron is his one little his one little and save. Like, Every every director needs their little yeah. like signature item. <laughs> and Ron Perlman. I actually don't think Ron Perlman is in Crimson Peak. I don't he's think so either. See, and he's not in everyone. If he's not, I don't think he's in Shape of Water either. Like and if he's nice, not, right? he doesn't shoehorn him in if he's not. <laughs> he's not like James not Gunn or. with his brother Sean Gunn. Um, but yes, um, very weird weasel thing. It's great. Yes. Oh, you you could yeah. You know, we'll put you in the, in the costume, um, but no, he's so good because you think about these actors, and a lot of them they take place before they're like really big. Like Tom Hiddleston was on the cusp, and Jessica yes. Chastain was on the cusp. Yes. Um, and oh God, what what's her name? The Wadachowski, uh, not Marissa. Marissa. It's a really <laughs> the Wyskowski. She, I think she yeah. had been in like Alice in Wonderland. Yeah. So she, I mean, she hasn't done as much since, but like. Those actors were perfect for that film, all of them, and they all understood the assignment. They got, they got it, it and they got the assignment. Yes, it, the, I think. Okay, here's another thing I really love about um, Guillermo del Toro as I'm like watching his. He has a style, but he also like, 
he likes to play around with very different types of films. Like he's not just making horror films. He's not just making fantasy films. He kind of finds ways to incorporate these these themes in this style, his very unique mm-hmm. kind of like beautiful grotesque style. I think that's yeah. the best way to describe it. Yeah. But and apply it to all these different things. And like there's he doesn't have anything else in like maybe Nightmare Alley is kind of similar to Crimson Peak, which is not in the same way. Like yeah. Crimson Peak is is absolutely it's a gothic horror story. Just yeah. a fully full on like classic horror. Yes rolled around and has ghosts involved and it's got all it's so many of these elements like, like literarily like, that you know what he's doing yeah if you put them together you see the similarities you see okay the same the same man worked on these but they're not uh, nightmare alley has a lot more like drama to it you know in a lot of ways it's more of a dark drama where crimson peak is not it's not a drama <laughs> so it's not like quite as like so stanley kubrick right yeah every single one of his movies is like totally different from the others but he still has a a distinct (laughs) style yes (laughs) right like 2001 space oddity oddity is odyssey is a science fiction film the shining is a horror film clockwork orange is like a weird crime thriller film he he definitely traipses just all around in the uh absurd in the the darkness of humanity and similar sort of themes but they're definitely all very distinct different genres and i think i think guillermo del toro i think he kind of does the same thing like there's like shape of water is nowhere near the same yeah those two films that are kind of similar are are split by this romance this like period romance that has the weirdness like we said that's the thing he's gonna he's gonna take the different genre he's gonna make a little bit weird he's gonna guillermo it up a little bit but still keep the quintessential the the themes of it it's still a very sweet movie it's about outsiders it's about being an outsider that's what the shape of water mostly have very just generally though a gothic theme going through there so i watched his uh his first film so if anybody wants to have a little like retrospective with guillermo del toro hbo max uh in anticipation of nightmare alley basically put all of his films on hbo max um so you can watch chronos which is like his first movie movie um and it is weird <laughs> you can see you can see the like baseline of it but so chronos is basically kind of like a vampire a gothic vampire story um and then you have mimic um and mimic is essentially like frankenstein um and now i'm kind of like looking through his i mean obviously hellboy is its own sort of thing um and but, have you uh, seen uh devil's backbone Ren? i have not seen devil's backbone is it a western it's well it's another kind of gothic horror film interesting really, yeah so really good <laughs> you're like yeah see you're st- we're noticing his pattern gothic's definitely the, so the only one that fully just leaves anything gothic behind the only film that he does not incorporate that darkness in at all is pacific rib <laughs> that is the outlier kind of it is it is kind it's fun it's big it's a little bit goofy, but it's still good. It just Pacific Rim does not incorporate the the, the bravery on that, right? <laughs> I'm like, I'm gonna try something totally. 
something different. I want to do a a kaiju movie, a Japanese kaiju movie is what I want to do. So you that's know, what we're going to do. I think that's another thing that I appreciate about Guillermo del Toro is he's like, he's a film nerds director. Like yeah. you can tell that he just really likes certain types of films. And it's like, I want to do a kaiju. I want to do like a gothic horror. I want to do a film noir. Like You can see that again, especially in Shape of Water, where we have that moment where they just go into the dance. You know, they just have this moment where they go into this classic dance. It goes into black and white. He just, yeah, he loves yeah. film. <laughs> and you can feel it. <laughs> Totally. And, and right. We've talked about how at the Oscars, they always like to nominate whoever like makes film nerds feel good about themselves by making a movie about movies. And Guillermo del Toro manages to tweak and stroke my little film nerd, film history lover without blatantly making a movie about making movies. Yeah. I think I appreciate it. Every movie that he does, you can tell that he lovingly studied and researched and like learned all about the genre and the type of film that he wanted to make. Um, he, there's you never no- feel like he he's making something he doesn't want to make either. Yes. Like even in his superhero days, uh, even when he did those superhero films, uh, uh, Hellboy was a a big passion project for him. He actually wanted a third one. Like he loved doing those Hellboy movies. He got to do the makeup. He got to do the weird creatures and all of that craziness. Uh, even Blade Two, uh, which is great. Uh, honestly, I, I think Blade Two is just as good as the first Blade, and I love the first Blade. Like again, he's a natural fit for those two superheroes too. Because hello, it's a vampire. <laughs> And it's this monster with a heart of gold, this like big honking beast with a heart of gold. That's Guillermo right there. Um, so even those films, it never feels like he's just like, uh, okay, fine. Like, I'll do it. Like, yeah, he yeah. produces, he passes that stuff and just produces it for other people. If he's like, eh, so In my research on Guillermo del Toro, um, so he made uh, Mimic in 1997. And then he just kind of like fucked off because he didn't like the Hollywood system, like as a result of doing Mimic, he was like, Ugh, "I'm yeah. like, I don't think Mimic is bad at all. It doesn't have quite the um, as much as the Guillermo del Toro touch that yeah. uh, I think. I mean, there's certainly things like there's there's he certainly brings in his um, Spanish speaking characters and yeah. that bit of culture. There's certainly religious aspects to it, um, like parts of it take place in a church, and there's certainly the, there's certainly Guillermo del Toro in it. Um, but yeah, he basically was like upset about it, and then so he just didn't really want to work in Hollywood, and that's why he made Devil's Backbone um, with his own independent production company. Yeah, um, and then. They basically Hollywood is like, oh my god, we love you. Please come back. This is amazing, actually. Come back. Yes, oh god, please. And he was like, okay. And then he made Blade Two, which is just fine. <laughs> uh, it's hard because Blade One is very good, and so everything after that is like, hmm, at least he didn't make Blade Three. Um, yeah, at least not for that. So have that bullshit on it. And it's actually, it's interesting looking at his body of work. It's actually not incredibly lengthy. Um, it's, it's not, he's, he's no Woody Allen just cranking him out every single year. Or even like Steven Spielberg. 
who just, yeah. you know, is producing two years, two films a year at some point in his career, or even recently over the past decade, it's like Spielberg is cranking films he's, out. He's having fun, right? Like he, he likes to, it seems like he likes to do other things. He likes to produce yeah. things. He likes to write things and have his own little. And he writes know. most of his films. He's, he's a writer quite yeah. often on his films. Um, so only won the two Oscars, and they were both for The Shape of Water. He won for Best Director, and then he was a, obviously a producer, so he won the Best Picture Oscar when it won. And the only other time he was nominated was Pan's Labyrinth, uh, which was cool to see a foreign film get nominated for Best Screenplay way back in 2006, because uh, that is still you know, uh, oh my gosh, a foreign film for screenplay. They probably can't even read the words and they nominated it. Academy. So, Gamma um, Inaritu, and one other guy. Who's the other uh, one? It's it like is- the, the Three Amigos, they call them. Three Amigos. <laughs> from Mexico. It's Inaritu, Del Toro, and Alfonso Coran. Yes, and those guys are just killing it in the foreign films. Yeah, breaking into it, they seem to like have a sense of what we like here. Oh, and they're also different too. What the voters for the Oscars like? That yeah, that's what's cool. Is they're both they're all three very different filmmakers. Like Del Toro would never make Roma, you know. Like that's yes, that's not for him. It also doesn't seem like any of them are making films they don't want to make, right? there's some things that is like uh, Oscar. <laughs> like let's all be real i much as i much as i liked king richard and i really enjoyed the story of um learning about serena williams and venus williams like those are incredible fucking women uh that is fucking oscar, oscar bait that is a hundred percent will smith was like i'm gonna win an oscar <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, you could just to make feel it yeah honestly and- I liked Fences a lot, too. That also was Oscar bait. It's like, you can tell when sometimes people are like, we're going to make this film and we're going to win Oscars with it. Well, but it doesn't ever feel like that is what they're trying to do. No. None of yeah. those guys. No. I, and they're I think trying to make a cool, interesting yeah. film that, that is art. They, they really like, do. I don't think Guillermo del Toro went out to make an Oscar-winning film with Nightmare Alley. He made nope. a film he wanted to make and here it is at the oscars again he's actually i believe the first director to get his pick like to win best picture and director and they get a nomination for his very next picture for best picture (laughs) uh so that's amazing but yeah you don't get that sense and with the other two either um Inyaritu does some weird stuff, so I don't really think he's Third man. Uh, the Revenant, having Leonardo oh, DiCaprio yeah. out here eating <laughs> raw meat. Uh, <laughs> stuff like that. Yeah. Uh, but <laughs> yeah, no, I think Del Toro is great. Keep it coming. I'm so excited for his first animated film. I'm so excited that it's stop motion oh. animation. <laughs> If I needed, as if I needed any more reasons to love Guillermo del Toro. I don't think I, until we like decided we were going to do this that I realized how much I loved Guillermo del Toro until I was like, oh my God. Yeah. He's so good. Oh my God. That's yeah. why it's so good. <laughs> and it just, it's so great to see directors that just have such a, a style to them, no matter yeah. what they do, no matter what they touch. So much. Authentic. Style. I yeah. love it. 
feels authentic to them and they just they have a keen a uh, keen sense i guess that's you know it's, it seems to just be <laughs> innate to some people of he knows he knows what makes good film and he knows what he likes and he's able to execute it to like mastery level perfection uh, over and over again he wants to delight his audiences and he fucking does it <laughs> And we love him for it. We love him. That's why we're always excited and ready for a new Del Toro film. <laughs> His stuff never feels narcissistic. It never feels like I am making a Guillermo Del Toro film, right? There's, there's never any, like, it just feels like he, he wants to... He wants to frame his stories. He wants to make his stories look good. He wants to make his actors look good, right? Like we, I think we could probably safely find a shitty performance from each of the actors that has been oh, yeah. in his movies, unless it's Kate Blanchett. <laughs> <laughs> even, when she, even when she's bad, no, she isn't. <laughs> Stop it. <laughs> no, and that matches up so perfectly. Like everything I've seen of him, like on camera, he is just, uh, so a lot of the film community calls him like, Tito Guillermo, <laughs> Uncle Guillermo. Oh, <laughs> because he just—he seems he so just happy—and everybody seems to just love him. I think that's why he has like this resurgence in the award community because <laughs> Hollywood loves him. Yeah, he also doesn't seem like he seems supportive of other people. Like he—he he seems like he spends like that's part of why he doesn't have this huge yeah. body of work is that he spends his time lifting other people up and like he could have directed scary stories to tell in the dark and he probably would have done a better job of it <laughs> but he was like no nah, i'm gonna write this script and then i'm gonna hand this off to someone else and let them have their opportunity to direct something he he does like all kinds of like directs like television shows and things and just like he he's willing to he doesn't seem to have any ounce of like of self-importance and he absolutely could um see this is how you know he loves it too like look at him he's out here he loves this pro hunters series it's an animated you know set series that he it's a fantasy series tell us just a project he loves <laughs> you know? it's been going on but that's another great thing about him is he is obviously a, a big name in the horror genre and he produces a lot of a lot of small horror films like these little horror movies that may or may not have gotten made we don't know but he just has like a i think that just shows his spirit of the types of projects too that he really funds and works on it's stuff that reflects his him and his style and what he's passionate about and getting some new folks in in the ring because again horror often is a gateway for hollywood in general so okay. yeah so there you have it we are fans of Tito <laughs> yes we love gdt <laughs> we love him and so we haven't been very snarky about guillermo yeah. del toro because what is there to be snarky about how he is a big bear that makes beautiful films and supports other artists and you're a, you're a jerk if you don't like him. Just He's kidding. an artiste without being a douche. <laughs> I would love to have a fight with somebody about Guillermo del Toro being not good. Oh, that was Patrick was like, oh, I was talking to someone and they were telling me that they thought Guillermo del Toro was overrated. And I was like, oh, what? He was like, oh, I, I thought you agreed with that. I was like, <laughs> Absolutely not. No, that it's slander and preposterous. Dare you? Who the fuck said that? <laughs> Bring them I to me now. 
Green Day, so I can argue with them about that. Yeah, that. Um, what overrated means? If anything, even with all his accolades, he's underrated. Underrated. He's only won like a couple of Oscars. Yeah, he was vastly underrated for like decades of his career. Yeah, for a long time. Just now, Hollywood is getting it. Argue that he was overrated until like. 2017 yeah. like if you really didn't think shape of water was that good and i think it's just people who don't love shape of water suddenly like oh guillermo is overrated <laughs> like no 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 hold on sir i'll say and here's the thing i could understand a person just like not liking shape of water because it's weird and it's just like <laughs> makes people uncomfortable i totally get it the weird bestiality thing is like weird well, i love it <laughs> weird. I'm not the bestiality part, but well, I tend to love. I mean, that definitely was the way it just came off just now. I know, so, I like, Shit. Uh, <laughs> let me be clear: I'm an animal activist rather than uh, somebody who advocates for bestiality. Lover of animals, not like a lover of animals. Oh, no, no, no. <laughs> they cannot consent to your behaviors, humans. Let's not get crazy. <laughs> but that being said, uh, Guillermo del Toro. Um, I could understand why you you wouldn't like Shape of Water, but like with any understanding of his body of work and just like what it takes to create a film and like the history of film and just like just look at look at his films. Like yeah. even if the, you don't like the plots that much, you cannot like scrap fault this man for his attention to detail and design and and the beautiful Gosh, films yeah. that he makes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, I, I could see I people it. just not like liking his weird stories. Sure, that's fine. If that's not your, your bag, that's not your bag. But like, <laughs> that man is a fucking film craftsman. Yeah. <laughs> we love to hear it. <laughs> you can dislike yeah. it, but he is a fucking filmmaker. Yeah. Perfect. Well, that was our review for 2021's Academy Award nominated Nightmare Alley, as well as our discussion of Guillermo del Toro as a director and some of his body of work. I hope you all enjoyed this podcast. If you did, make sure to leave a rating for us wherever you're listening and a review. It certainly helps us be seen and we will be a little less snarky with you if you help us out maybe sure. <laughs> ran where can they find you to to come straight at you come at me on twitter i probably won't get your at so do it <laughs> at ren manly uh and then if you want to actually get my attention i am also on instagram at rennypoo13 Perfect. And you can follow us on both Twitter and Instagram at Cinema Snarks. And you can find me at Chili Boy Warchi on Twitter and Chili Boy Productions, both on YouTube and on Instagram. Well, yeah, you can oh. follow my letterbox. Yes. Letterboxd. <laughs> under Cinema Snarks. Uh, so Cinema you get my uh, reviews uh, under Cinema Snarks, which you'll get Larry's if you visit his. Uh, LC screen talk. Yeah, that no. one is still LC screen talk because you have to have LC premium to change talk. your name. Properly rebranded. <laughs> yeah. uh, great. I don't want to pay for a premium, so I can't change my name. Great. Uh, but uh, <laughs> yes, yeah, so follow along, uh, especially as Ren specifically plays lots of catch up leading up to the Oscars. As you can see, oh, her, her so ratings many. for all of the Oscar nominees. <laughs> Coming up. Um, doing okay? You, <laughs> all the nominees. <laughs> And I was like, ah, oh, fuck. Still doing okay. I, it's still a little bit, you know. Yeah. But still, I like last year I had like I had 
over half of them before the nominations came out, like done. And we were great. Yeah. It's a little harder this year because a lot more of the stuff didn't go straight to streaming. Like it was pretty easy in 2021 because it was like, oh, great. <laughs> my living room and watch TV is what everybody's doing these days. Um, although yeah. I will say, luckily, the films this year that I have to watch are not uniformly depressing, <laughs> which is exciting. Oh, man. Well, thank you for listening along and we'll catch you on the next one. Bye.